Welcome to Team Talk from Team Kinetic with me, Chris Martin. And me, Imo Greatbudge. Team Talk is the podcast that dives deeper into the world of volunteer management and getting to know the people who help make volunteering happen, why they do it, how they do it, and what they want to see change. Welcome back for season three of our little pod, where we're going to get into some thinking around the vision for volunteering themes, speak to a range of experts who can help us understand where volunteering is now and where we want to be over the next 10 years. This week, we're joined by a guest who many of you may already know. And I know he won't mind me uh, saying he's seen more of the volunteer sector than most. <laughs> and this, this yesterday, he's celebrating his 29th year of working in volunteering. So, Rob Jackson, welcome to Team Talk and happy 29th anniversary. Thank you. I'm not sure my receding hairline appreciates the 29 years, but uh, I appreciate the good wishes. Thank you. Well, you don't look a day over 29. (laughs) I'll pay you later. (laughs) I did have a little look online what 29 years represents. Any guesses? Uh, No, fail. So you can't shake your head on a podcast, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> no idea, Chris. Uh, Garnet. Uh, Explore a little deeper. <laughs> this stone represents revitalization, purification, and balances energy, brings serenity, passion, and uh, we think you know that's it suits you well. That Rob, I think it's a stone that uh, couldn't be a more appropriate description for you in the voluntary sector. Bringing serenity. I'm not quite <laughs> sure about that one, but certainly passion and commitment. I'll go with that for definite. Yeah, that's quite a nice description, though. You know, it is a nice description. There's definitely things I'd like to aspire to. <laughs> Well, and we're, we're in a little pod house today, aren't we? we Usually are, yeah. we're on Zoom and we're, the three of us are in a room together. You can't see us, but uh, hopefully it sounds nice and clear. Um, but part of this pod, Rob, it is an opportunity for the audience to get to know you as a guest a little bit better. And although Chris has said um, you've been a fixture in the sector, I don't, I don't like the word fixture, you've been an influential <laughs> role within the sector for some time, people may not appreciate your journey. And there may Maybe some listeners who may be from the more traditional parts of the volunteer sector or may not be aware of your work. So we'd love to spend the first part of our chat talking about you, the things that make you tick, what gets you excited, your career to date and how you found yourself working in this strange world we called volunteer management. Yeah, that's fine. I like talking about myself. That's good. (laughs) Great stuff. I think most people who have come across one of your blogs or maybe they've attended a session you've run at one of the sector events or maybe uh, they've signed up to something like Volunteer Voice or your 200 Word Tuesday. So, you know, there is, you've got plenty of content out there where mm. people may have bumped into you. Uh, but I, I've got to know you as the straight-talking consultant with some pretty strong opinions about the state yeah. of the sector currently. Uh, but we'll come back to those a little bit later. Okay. But I'd like to start with you, sort of your professional journey, uh, you know, as a... As a volunteer manager, well, you know, I saw from we do do some research for this show, and I saw from that research that you started, you know, in physics and acoustics, which yeah. may not be the most traditional uh, journey into uh, into volunteer management. I feel like it could be a podcast all of its own. Yeah, probably. You know, honesty. You know, so how does a, a boy from Manchester end up working in this particular space? Well, you would have thought as well if I'd done acoustics, I'd have known how to set all the IT up to get this <laughs> well, well, yeah. going well. Yeah. Uh, so I, um, I. Did physics with modern acoustics at university um, for two years. So even most listeners will realise that means I did not finish my degree. <laughs> okay. um, because it was a subject that really interested me at school, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was quite 
uh, a fascinating topic. I still think a lot of that kind of stuff's quite interested, uh, interesting, and I, I've always been a fan of music. I've always loved music as well, so I thought it might be quite a nice interface between the two. Um, let's just say the reality didn't match the expectation. <laughs> okay. Um, but I had a really good time at university. I absolutely loved university, and uh, but my grades didn't bear that out. So okay. when I got to the end of my second year, I was in a position where at that point, um, I, you had to do a placement year. You had to do a placement year in your subject. And with my grades, it was nigh impossible to find anything. I okay. mean, nobody's gonna hire you with those low grades. So um, I ended up getting a job at the university, actually, managing what was then called a student tutoring and mentoring program. So nice. basically volunteer management, but I had no idea what volunteer management was. So you're recruiting mainly undergraduates to be classroom assistants, mentors in local schools, kind of raising aspirations towards higher education. Yep. Um, six months into that, just thought, I've enjoyed this more than the last two years of my studies. Mm. Um, I find it really fulfilling and really rewarding. So I decided, right, that was it. I was going to drop out and I was going to keep doing that job. Did it for a year. Went and got another job shortly afterwards with the Students' Union running a volunteer-led uh, advice service. So the advice service had paid staff, of which I was one, but we also had students recruited. So it was like peer support and advice. Yep. Um, moved up to London, um, went for a job with Bernardo's, got that supporting volunteer engagement across children's services, London, East Anglia and the South East. Went from there to RNIB, did six years on supporting volunteer fundraising nationally. Went to Volunteering England, did six years there. So there's a bit, six a year theme. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, six years, yeah. six years, six years. <laughs> um, ended my time there as Director of Development and Innovation um, with the, the change of government in 2010, long story short, funding cuts. Okay. Um, we took the decision as an organisation that we couldn't make most of the staff redundant and uh, leave a senior management team in place. So we cut the senior management team. Mm. Um, so I went out on my own. So since 2011, I've been a freelancer. So I talk about doing four things, writing. So I've written a couple of books, do all the blogging you were talking about, Chris. Yep. I do speaking at events, I do training, and I also do consulting. And that's for clients, large and small, right across the UK. But I've also got a client base uh, on the continent and in Australia, New Zealand, the US and Canada as well. Oh, that's pretty impressive uh, journey through volunteering. But quite interested to unpick that not finding something immediately must have been a bit low on the morale and kind of you talked a little bit about the, the grades and then you not being able to get things. How how did that build your resilience in, in the sector and kind of from working in volunteering? Yeah, I... <sighs> I suppose that experience probably wasn't the defining one. The defining one was when I left volunteering England because I'd found, I, I sheer blind luck, every job I'd ever gone for, I got. Mm. It's a nice and problem to have. It's a lovely problem to have. Yeah. And, um, you know, you when you suddenly find yourself not getting those jobs, mm. you begin to question, is there something wrong with me? Yeah. Is it Now, I went for a job... I won't tell you which organisation, but when I knew I was being made redundant from volunteering England and I didn't get that job and I spent two, three weeks over Christmas being pretty miserable. Yeah. And then the moment I decided in the new year I was going to go freelance and started to tell some people, okay, work started to come in. Oh, wow. And, you know... Give you I, the confidence back again that, okay, yeah. maybe... Yeah, yeah I, I think it's a timing thing. Yep. 
you know, maybe the universe was conspiring on my behalf or yep. something like that. But um, I'd known consultants, so the idea of going down this particular kind of work was always at the back of my mind. But that, I suppose, in, in terms of your resilience question, Imo, it was that sense of actually this is steering me to do the right kind of thing. And, mm. um, you know, my mum my was definitely not a religious person, but she was always of the opinion that the right thing comes along at the right time. Yeah. You've just got to have the patience You've for got to be it. open to the opportunity yeah, once yeah, it yeah. pops Open up. to the universe. Yeah. Mm. So I think that I think it, that was just the universe, whatever you want to think's way of telling me this was the time to, to go do it. But then working 12 years as a freelancer through two of the worst economic crises that we've had definitely teaches you (laughs) (laughs) when you start your new financial year on the first of april you know in a normal job you look at your budget and go i've got money as a freelancer you go i have no money (laughs) other than outgoings so yeah yeah, it's a different perspective but it's an amazing leap to make anyway sort of um so it's been something of a pattern of the guests that we've spoke to that the, over the three seasons they don't genuinely have a traditional volunteer mm. background um, you fell into it through kind of university yep. and that side of things be interested to hear your thoughts on that and as a sector there isn't a set career path no um, it, is that changing a little do you think it's a problem in a world where you know there's such professional standards should there be a career path for volunteer mm. managers yeah it's a really good question and there's about a million different one million and one different ways of answering it. And I'll start by saying I think the fact that people come to this from so many different backgrounds and experiences is a real asset. I mean mm-hmm. the most left field one I can think of um is a fantastic guy in the States called Jerome Tenniel, um, who does absolutely brilliant work, who came to this from working in military intelligence from the wow. US Navy. Love it. You know, I've not really come across anybody else that's come into the sector from kind of what you would expect as being completely left field. And he's fantastic, absolutely fantastic guy. So I think I think that diversity and that breadth of experience is a real asset for us. Yeah. Because particularly when we get together online or particularly when we get together at conferences, you've got so many different perspectives coming at this one topic that people tend to be quite passionate and about. the topic is so broad yeah absolutely in of itself absolutely and you know i'm a big fan of um matthew syed's book rebel ideas which is all about diversity in thinking and diversity yeah. in organizations and how that really adds value so i think that's a real asset for us i don't think we're ever going to get to the point where people go mum dad when i grow up i want to be a volunteer manager I mean, my, my seven-year-old said that to me, but that was only because he knew I was a volunteer manager. <laughs> okay. And I did work with somebody in Belfast last week who had quite an early positive experience of volunteering and thought, that's the kind of road that I want to go down. Um, I Is it a barrier that we don't have qualifications? I don't know. Um, for me, it's not so much qualifications as core competencies. Yeah. That you... We, we've we talked before the pod today about uh, getting volunteering more recognised at board level yeah, 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 and yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah. And I feel that if volunteering management of itself, in of itself was held in higher esteem in the yes, organisation yeah. and was held in equivalent professional standard as HR maybe, yeah. that maybe that would change yeah. some of these. I don't know, but yeah. you know this idea that you know anybody can be a volunteer manager is probably true because it's really about the personal skills and the organizational skills coming together in a a nice union but it does feel like there is some core competencies there that could be codified a little bit more well and i I guess 
interestingly, we're quite UK based or yep. do go international, yep. but you, you've yep. got a lot of yep. colleagues yep. across the globe. On Chris's point about core competencies, the trend of what you've seen in those who are really, really brilliant at what they do, what sort of three to five themes oh, of competencies really would you have say you'd seen in them? It's a really good question. Um, I mean, there are core competencies out there. Let me start by saying that. So probably the most well-established is the work that the Council for Certification on Volunteer Administration in the States does. So they have the CBA qualification. It's a rigorous process that you have to go through to study for that, take an mm. exam, get yeah. that. You then have to re-accredit every five years. It is predominantly North American. There are people in the UK who have it. There are people around the world who have it. They do have a, a kind of a, a, an ethical position statement on volunteer engagement. Okay. They do talk about core competencies in there as well. Um, and they they are growing, I think, in awareness. If you are in the US, my experience is you are at a disadvantage in the job market as a volunteer manager if you do not have CVA after your name. Okay. So I think in that sense, I agree with you that having something would be useful. Um, I was involved in the first group that ever developed the National Vocational Qualification in Volunteer Management here in the UK, or at least in England. And I think where I find it kind of slightly difficult to answer the question is, is from two perspectives. Most of what was assessed by the MVQ was the process side of volunteer management. Yeah. Can you write a policy? Mm. Can you do a risk assessment? Which is really, really important part. And people need to be able to know that kind of stuff. And that's often the nature of an MVQ more than anything yeah. else, rather than necessarily. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Does it make a great volunteer engagement professional? Not necessarily. Not on its own. Yeah. Mm. Um, I've asked that question countless times over the years. What makes somebody a really great volunteer engagement professional? And I've never got a really consistent answer. Mm. I think for me, it's a marrying of that system process stuff but it's also about being able to engage with people. Yeah. It's yeah. about that interpersonal skills. It's about relating to people. It's about influencing people. So yeah. those recalcitrant staff who don't want to work with volunteers, uh, influencing senior managers, mm -hmm. influencing decision makers to think about volunteers. So there's three straight yeah. off the bat. Um, in terms of a career path, it's one of the questions that I ask in one of the workshops that I do, kind of where do you come from yep. into this? Because I agree most people kind of fall into it by accident. Um, but also where does success look, what does success look like? So is success, you know, head of volunteering in a national organisation? Yep. Is success becoming a consultant? I don't think it's down to the job that we do. I think success, if we're doing well as a profession, and we can get into the whole what, and what is and what isn't and a we profession. Might. Um, <laughs> we might. Is um, when you get to wherever you get to, are you playing a positive and supportive role around volunteering? So if success for you is becoming a chief exec, then you and you have a background in volunteer management, then woe betide you if you are a chief exec who does not support investment in effective volunteer yeah. engagement. And more of us almost could be aspiring to that. So, yeah. I'd be interested. I mean, it's not that when you just pose that question, I wonder how many of the bigger charities, their chief exec, come from the volunteering part of the organization. I don't know if anyone's got any stats on that. Or even flip it, how many of them actually volunteer and and yeah. have kind of 
that experience of because we've interchanged already yeah. with the term of volunteer management absolutely and i can hear you self-corrected yourself to uh volunteer engagement professional and there's yeah. you know volunteer involvement as well we've yeah. talked about yeah. vips yeah. um and and i guess what what's the shift in the profession of the terminology is it because you know volunteers don't like the sense of being managed or volunteer managers don't like the sense of managing people kind of what do you think the shift in terminology across the sector is so i think the shift i think increasingly the established term is volunteer engagement professionals and i think that marks people out as people who are in this as a profession this is their job rather than the tens of thousands of people across the public, private and voluntary sectors who work with volunteers but would never see themselves as a volunteer manager. Okay. They're a community fundraiser, they're an office manager, they're a curator. They're a chair of a sports club. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever it may be. So I think increasingly we're moving to that volunteer engagement and I think um, the reason why the engagement's important is because we've gone from being administrators, coordinators to managers, leaders kind of is parallel suggests, with managers but it's just hierarchy as well but this and we'll get onto it when maybe when we talk about some of the research that's around at the moment engaging people to get a really good experience in volunteering is the core of what we do mm -hmm. so engagement also to me and it links to the vision uh, is about equal partners this isn't just about you come in and we manage you as a free labor mm. for those that can't see i'm inverted commas with my fingers <laughs> Um, you know, the free labour side of things. Yeah. And and I don't think, in terms of your question, Chris, I don't I, I don't have a universal knowledge of every charity chief exec in the country. But I think, for me, the indicator is that very few of the courses in non-profit management that exist, the post-grad, mm -hmm. master's courses, yep. spend any substantive time teaching people about volunteering um yep. bay's business school do largely because justin davis smith who used to be chief exec at volunteering england used to be my boss is there and he's made that a key part of their platform yep. but you can my understanding is you can go on a lot of these non-profit management courses and you can learn about charity accounting and how you handle that and how you do hr yep. and all of these kinds of things and the only time volunteers will ever get talked about is to do with the board and the v word won't get used that's interesting. I had a, a conversation with some professors that do organisation management and they were saying that very little effort is put into helping anybody in business understand the value of things that isn't monetary. Yes. And it's a similar kind of thing, I think. Oh, we, 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 you know, we're in that sort of same kind of space of uh, they're kind of difficult things to teach, if yeah, that makes yeah. sense, so they, and they don't sit within the normal yeah, paradigm. Totally. And, and we're obsessed in our sector with cost. Yeah. The voluntary sector, not is value, cost, cost of everything, value of nothing. Yes, but uh, but, but the, and this is the bit that really sort of frustrates me in regards to well, actually, if you do want to look at cost, and we're in a social action world, yeah. and there's a sort of social return on investment, and if you look at the well-being implications, you know, the hidden diamonds report from years and mm, years ago, mm. and actually the benefits of volunteering, health, yep. you know, physical yep. well-being, and and the reduction in costs in hospital costs because people are giving, they feel, Absolutely. you know, why why aren't we pushing that kind of more for the sector is that better education of the professionals within it or i think it's because uh, sue carter carl in the states does a load of really really good stuff and her volunteer commons 
blog is well yeah. worth going and checking out. She's probably the kind of lead. She was on my podcast. Um, she's probably the leading person when she's well, talking about other this. podcasts about volunteering. I know. I know. I'm going to. I know. There are more advanced ones advancing the profession, right? Sorry, um, but uh, she talks about it as. Uh, you know, you've got bodies like the International Labour Organization. So yep. the International Labour Organization's defined way of measuring volunteering is Cost wage unit. replacement model. Yeah. How many hours timed by minimum wage or equivalent thing. Mm. When you've got big international bodies like that who yep. push that agenda forward and they do it because it's easy to measure, yep. not because it's the best thing to measure, mm. then that leads to everybody else doing the same thing. Andy Haldane now in charge at RSA, was chief economist at the Bank of England, did Go a speech. Let's try and get him on the podcast. Good. He did a speech in 2014 from his experience of setting up pro bono economics, yep. which was about measuring the economic, personal and social value of volunteering. So exactly mm. what you're saying, mm. Emma, you know, if we can, if by, through social prescribing, we know that we can reduce the demand on a GP surgery by 50% because the issue is loneliness and having mm. somebody to talk to, yeah. we can measure that and that's a value that's volunteering has delivered yeah. that is not the equivalent of if we paid people to do this work, yeah. which we never would because it would cost us too much money, yeah. this is what it would cost us, which is a stupid argument. I also think as well, when you're into the, the intang measuring the intangible cost values of these things, the sector has been a victim of its own poor processes in doing that in the past and it's made people question the values that are sometimes ascribed to some of these things so the work you mentioned for Andy Halladane and the join-in work that was similar came out at a similar time uh, they suggested that sports volunteering had a value of 50 billion Andy Halladane suggested the volunteering sector had a value of 200 billion yeah which puts it on a par with oil yeah you know and people look at that and they go hmm it starts a conversation it's an interesting conversation but as a politician, you can't take that two hundred billion to the bank and do something with it. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a challenging it is. piece of messaging to get right that people believe it. It is, but it's also it's also about the way that we value things as a society. So it's not yeah. just the sector's fault. So Scotland, New Zealand uh, are both looking for it. I think Iceland as well are both looking at how you measure national success in terms of a well-being economy rather than an economy mm. economy. Yes. So GDP does not become your core measure. So I yeah. can't remember, it may have been Andy Haldane who said it, that we don't count volunteering it's, in our GDP, but we can organise crime. Yeah, mm. it's the donut uh, economics yeah. approach where, you know, inputs and outputs uh, yeah. are not necessarily all financial. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I think if we... If we got to more of a kind of well-being economy, then I think volunteering suddenly jumps up the agenda for mm. people. Yeah. Well, and looping back to where you started talking about the experience is really important of the volunteers Ooh. and ensuring that's in place. Well, actually, if we think back to events like the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, the experience of those attending the Commonwealth Games yeah. is absolutely brilliant when they've had that welcoming, cheering kind of volunteer that's guided yeah. them where they are at the Commonwealth Games. And the impact of volunteers enjoying their experience on others' experiences is through the roof. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I think there's an, the, the other element to this as well, and it comes back to that kind of how an organisation sees it. So if your job is like a Bernardo's or something like that, you're there supporting vulnerable children, vulnerable adults, whoever, that's your kind of core mission. That's what you're there to do. Yeah. So you think of volunteers as a way of bringing in people to work as part of a wider team with paid staff to deliver yeah. that service. 
you maybe don't immediately approach it from the perspective of the very active involving volunteers has a knock-on effect on the health and well-being of those volunteers mm. and therefore that's a form of service delivery so we if we look at it just in this yeah. kind of mm. one-dimensional almost way of thinking about a charity or a non-profit and this is why I, one of the themes that I come back to a lot is I think a lot of volunteer managers get this. I think most of the people who are probably listening to this understand a lot of this kind of stuff or are aware that. a lot, appreciate yeah. it, value it. The point is not about preaching to that choir because they get yeah, it. Yeah. It's it's preaching to the politicians, the chief execs, the boards, yeah. the people like who don't necessarily see this, getting it on the curriculum for non-profit management mm. courses yeah. so that people see that broader benefit. And British Heart Foundation just published some great a great report recently and they were talking about the kind of undervalue of volunteering within social prescribing. We know volunteering can be a really great piece of social prescribing, but that it's just not recognised highly enough. We'll pop a link into that particular yeah. piece of work. But you, you're right, it's the often at board level, and we've had personal experience of this as a company, volunteering is often seen as risk yeah. and not seen as value to the I same extent. Um, and that comes from, that comes, in my experience, from, the only way I can phrase it is prejudice and stereotype. So it's because... Because you're not paid as a volunteer, yep. you are inherently untrustworthy, unreliable, and incompetent. I mean, if you've worked with a member of staff who broke confidentiality, you would never go, all employees are going to break confidentiality. But loads of people will work with a volunteer who breaks confidentiality and will say, volunteers should never be allowed near confidential information ever again. And one of the things, I it's a mantra that I talk about over and over and over again, Pay does not equal competence. Mm. There are some incredibly well-paid people in the world who are terrible at what <laughs> they do, and there are millions of people who get paid nothing who are superb at what they do. And I was waiting for the opinions to start. <laughs> Here we go. Brilliant. But I think, do you think, so it feels like, from what I'm observing in sport and through broader organisations, yeah. um, organisations are moving more from outcome-driven strategy to purpose-driven strategy, yes. and we know that cause is very important to volunteers yep. do you think that that could have a positive impact yes. from the leadership point of view potentially yeah i think it, i think it absolutely could do um and you're right we know lots of volunteers are motivated by cause driven uh, agendas we know there's research in the states that says that's true of millennials there's relatively recent research out i mean i think british heart foundation mentioned it the study i just referenced about uh, people over the age of 55 as well. I think the thing with cause-driven is it has a knock-on impact for organisations, which is the moment we talk about cause, what we're saying is, I'm passionate, for example, about the climate agenda. I don't care if that's Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, Friends of the Earth, yeah, Greenpeace. It's a pretty broad church. I want to yeah. fight the you know fight the climate agenda. I want to work for that. That then means if I don't care which organisation I do, we have to stop being so precious about are they our volunteers mm. <laughs> and how do we work together to make sure that people are pushing in the right direction. for vo So that's where I think it has a really practical yeah. leadership implication because we have to s take a step back and go, 
actually, if I don't have enough volunteers, it doesn't matter so long as the bigger cause has got enough. Well, and it's funny that because it could be like a one of five themes collaboration yeah. in a vision for volunteering. Yeah, it? sounds you know, you like a good like idea, that. doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I often it's think it's almost well. like we'd spoken about this before yeah. today. <laughs> that for me as well, there's if, if you if you do that's the commercial world, and you were working on a product in that setting. Yeah. You would look at your competitors. You would look at your people that offer similar things to you, and you would, you would be looking at that as a market, yeah. as opposed to them being my volunteers. Yeah, uh, you know, and you'd be developing that market. And you'd sometimes develop that market with your competitors because a bigger market for, for one of you is a bigger market yeah. for all of you. Um, but so, this this is where I think we get hung up on it though, because even still in the talk of you know volunteer passports and volunteer sharing. We talk about the fact that we're in competition as volunteer-involving organisations yeah. with each other. We're not. We're not at all. What we're in competition with is anything that people can spend their spare time exactly. doing. Exactly. Mm. So when yeah. you look at time well spent, when you look at Community Life Survey, about a quarter to a third of people say they volunteer because they've got time. The objection is not, I don't have time. It's, I have other things to do with my spare time. Mm. Yes. I want to prioritise my spare time doing things other than volunteering and that's probably got more acute for people after we've been through a year or 18 months of not being allowed to go out and do the things that we normally do yeah. so our competition it's one of the things I say when I'm working with organizations is your competition is not the charity shop down the road it's not the sports group around the corner your competition is anything your volunteers can spend their spare time doing so I worked with an organization not that long ago who Changed the way, changed the shift patterns for their volunteers after after the first two okay. lockdowns. So their volunteers were mainly retired. They were um, mainly coming in, working outdoors, and they were working from ten in the morning till two in the afternoon. Okay. Pre COVID, that was the shift pattern. Yep. Okay. When they came back after COVID, that shift pattern got moved from eleven in the morning till three in the afternoon, and they lost volunteers. Mm. The reason they lost volunteers was because those volunteers had other things to do with their spare time, which was picking their grandkids up from school. Yeah, yeah. And guess what? Their grandkids were more important to them than yeah. their volunteering. Yeah. <laughs> what a surprise. So if we, if we don't, it wasn't, they weren't going and volunteering for another group. Yeah. It was, we hadn't designed it right yeah. around that group. We hadn't yeah. understood what else was drawing on their time. So I think if we get out of that, you know, British Heart Foundation are in competition with Cancer Research UK are yeah. in competition with British Red Cross. We open up loads of collaborative possibilities. Yeah. And I, But I think that's where volunteer engagement professionals are very good. Yeah. And there oh, is yeah. a lot of appetite to collaborate and particularly in sport as well. I do think yeah. within kind of like teams, I there's an appetite to... Yeah. I think it's the, the structure of the sector makes it quite difficult and the infrastructure that's available to do the collaboration is quite mm. limited so you can you cannot compete with your nearest rival you don't compete with volleyball for volunteers mm. for example but there's also no real way for you to share volunteers but i think in a straightforward way volunteer engage i agree with you emma i think volunteer engagement professionals do get that and i think that's because a lot of them realize that the people who volunteer with their organizations don't just volunteer with one organization yeah they volunteer elsewhere as well but you see it even within an organization where it's competition between the volunteers and the donors so we know from the mm. research that's out there volunteers make more generous donors mm. than non-volunteers yeah yet either rarely do we ask volunteers to become financial donors or, or do we do it in an appropriate way and yeah. i've got some blank looks in the last nine months when i've said to organizations um 
you've probably got donors who are stopping giving at the moment because of the cost of living crisis. Has your fundraising team asked them if they'd like to volunteer instead? And there's a look of confusion mixed with panic, mixed with mm. what is this weird thing this guy's talking about? So it's even within organisations. Yeah. So it, it comes back again. I think the volunteer engagement professional gets it. It's the wider audience. Did they get it? And what needs to change to help them get it? I think some of it's the language. I think we just stop talking about our volunteers. I mean, mm -hmm. Carl Wilding used that. He would say it's not original to him, but he used that brilliant line at a conference a few years ago. They're not your volunteers. You are their organisation. Mm -hmm. So it's that mindset shift. It's about changing people's understanding. And when I say people, I'm meaning the people who kind of hold some of the strategic responsibility but aren't volunteer engagement professionals, board, yep. senior leadership teams, chief. It's easy yep. to say it's all of them. It's not all of them. Some yep. of them are really switched on. Helping them to understand that, you know, volunteers today aren't Ethel aged 80 who's going to step forward and give you two days a week until she's 105. And by the way, she volunteers 25 hours a day, eight days a week with 300 organisations in the local community already. You know, volunteering is different from that. We've yeah. got loads of research that unpicks that. And and I think it's this it's this mindset of possessiveness and control. And as you said, Chris, risk. Yep. If if you know, it's just about doing something different. Mm. And I get that, particularly for a lot of organisations at the moment, it's hard. Money's tight. Mm. Future's uncertain. It's yep. scary times for people doing something different. But one of the things that I remain, and I've said this quite a lot on my blog, and I, I say it quite a lot in the speaking that I do, that fills me with great optimism at the moment is that it's when you get in really difficult times like this that the really innovative and creative solutions come out. Mm. And I'm. I wouldn't wish what we're going through as a, as a country and some of the people in this country are going through things far worse than I am. wouldn't wish that on anybody. But I think uh, we're going to get some really creative solutions around volunteering in the future out of it. And I'm quite excited by that. Yeah, the market sort of will demand it. Yeah. The, and whilst we're talking about the uh, interesting times that we're going through at the moment... Um, we don't tend to discuss politics with our with our <laughs> guests. It's normally not something you discuss. Right? No, no. Well, uh, politics, <laughs> religion, money. Stay uh, well clear. And, <laughs> and many of our guests often are still sort of very much active in a situation where they re require government funding or work within a government department. Yep. Uh, so it, it's it's often there is maybe a suggestion in some of the things they say about some of the things they feel. <laughs> in your case, it's slightly different because you are a you know a, a paid up member of the Labour Party I am. and an active volunteer. So. Yeah. I was interested to sort of find out a little bit about how that's influenced your thinking around volunteer management and how the you know what what in practice that practice actually means being a volunteer in a political party at the minute. Yeah. So um, so let me say it's a relatively recent thing. Okay. So um, I uh, joined the Labour Party earlier on this year. I live in uh, Grantham in Lincolnshire, which is part of the Grantham and Stamford constituency. It's, I believe, one of the 60 safest Conservative seats in the country. Um, it has had a Conservative-controlled council for as long as I've been alive until May the 4th local elections this year. Wow. Um, so um, it's definitely fighting, I wouldn't say lost cause. <laughs> An uphill battle. Yes, I'm definitely tilting at window, <laughs> at windmills sorry, yeah. as part of a relatively small team of people who think the world could be a better place uh, under Labour. Um, and, and I would say I'm not one of those people who thinks 
everything that one political party stands for is perfect. Yeah. Everybody's got faults. Of course. I think where it connects me in is it's definitely that cause motivation. There is a a real kind of social justice frustration, yep. anger with where we are as a country. And, I don't uh, think you'd be alone in that, no, that feeling at the moment. And a sense of hopelessness and for a lot of people despair. I mean, reading this morning about, uh, not just from the BBC, um, but reading this morning about a head teacher where in a primary school where one of the girls fell over in the playground and ripped her tights and was bawling her eyes out because she was terrified of having to go back to her mum and telling her that she needed to buy new tights because her mum just couldn't oh afford yep. that. And the school having to buy tights for her. Yep. You know, and, and boys falling over in the playground and ripping holes in their trousers. The fact that we as the economy and the country that we are are at that point, for whatever reason, and we could talk forever about the reasons why we're there, yep. we won't, because it's not a political podcast. No. Um, <laughs> So that's part of my that that's a big part coming back into the volunteer management is its cause. I think this is something that we've got a chance to do something. You can about. influence some change. Now I would say I have in the past been a member of the Liberal Democrats. Okay. And there are two reasons why I'm not a member of the Liberal Democrats anymore. Uh, and they have been a client, so I'm okay. definitely not getting any more work as a consequence of this. Um, one of them is because I don't think they stand any realistic chance of forming a future government. Okay. Um, Interesting. I, I left the, political yeah. I feel like this is very honest. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I left the Liberal Democrats, like a lot of people did, over the tuition fees issue. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, I genuinely don't think... I don't... There isn't... There would have to be some kind of electoral... Upheaval. Earthquake. Yeah, which I think may be coming. To have a third party take take control yeah I, like absolute control the, yeah I think yeah, I think I agree and you're gonna, we're going to find a situation where I think um, strategic voting is going to kick yeah, in yeah, this time yeah, around because yeah. people are so I, pretty I, sick and I don't think and I'm not going to comment on that from a Labour Party perspective because <laughs> they're throwing out people who've been in the party for 40 years <laughs> yeah. on that one um, so I think I think Labour has got a more realistic chance next time round um, i could well be proven wrong I might not be so there's definitely something about that but the other one which is the more practical one in regard to what we're talking about is their volunteer management sucked oh really okay oh yeah. uh, for the, the liberals for the liberal Democrats. okay so that now th that may be because if Labour is an outside chance where I live Liberal Democrats are even further of an outside chance okay. politically yeah but I had fired off emails to people that I had received emails from in the local party and I never got replies I filled in skills audits. Nobody ever followed up with me. Okay. You know, the usual kind of don't tell me you desperately need volunteers and, and then, then ignore don't me. reply. Yeah. I feel like you uh, wrote a 200 word Probably. Tuesday of poor <laughs> communication. Uh, that, that's now you see where I get items. my influences from, Emma. I'll be doing a 200 word Tuesday on working in a podcasting studio at some point. No. Um, the, in contrast, when I joined the Labour Party, I was put in touch with people. I was invited to meetings. There was a whole bunch of online learning resources that were made available to me. And I think if we go back, it's a very long-winded way of no, going no, back that's, to, that's fine. if people are cause-motivated and they sign up to volunteer for a cause-motivation, yeah. then we have to recognise that and we have to hit that cause-motivation mm, yeah. straight away. And that's yeah. how can we give you something to do? 
how can we get you involved? How can we get you to meet people mm. who are like-minded and are yeah. interested in this? How can we give you the resources and the tools and the information yeah. to do something with that passion? Yeah. It may ultimately be fruitless. You may not bring about the change that you think you want to see, but at least we're harnessing that passion and that enthusiasm. And, and that's different from having a volunteer manual and a training policy. Yeah. Of course, it's, it's, it's about how it feels to people. It's the engagement piece yeah. that you were talking about yeah. before. Well, and there's a, it, it's the movement, isn't it? Like, you, you can actually create a movement when you tap into that well. I know certainly in Absolutely. Netball, you know, female health and kind of women and girls is a big agenda yeah. for us. And we've just launched Netball Her. Sorry for yeah. bringing it to Netball, Chris. Okay. You know, I can't help but um, <laughs> talk about it. But Netball Her is really about the different life stages and more visibility and understanding through our partnership with the well of, you know, being able to talk about periods and not feel like yes. embarrassed about yeah. it and that side of things and having menopause policies in work and that side of things. And it's been really powerful seeing when we've tapped into that with women and girls and, you know, men who've got daughters who want to champion yeah. it as well. You yeah. know, definitely it's it's it can be really, really powerful. And I think it's interesting as well when you think about something like political volunteering, it being cause driven, and you look at what's happened on the right yeah. of the political spectrum and how they've created uh, you know, almost uh, rabid anger. And mm. that's what they've used to charge up their base. Yeah. And you're thinking, okay, well, can we take some of those lessons and use some of that stuff to, to you know, it, there is something in there around how you can activate people yeah. emotionally mm -hmm. because it isn't, it decides to volunteer is an emotional choice. Yeah. Certainly if it's cause driven, uh, often, you know, you, you, you and we, how do we, how do we speak to those emotions? How do you, it's not about process, although that's got to be important because it's got to be there, but how do we speak to that emotional yeah. side of the brain that makes you go, okay, I'm going to do something about that? Well, you've got, you've got to help people feel stuff, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. And I think, yeah, yeah that's and it's, really important. It's also about local connection yeah. as well. And, the, you know, the, the more we think about it, there's definitely a series of blog posts in here about the parallels <laughs> between the political world and the volunteering world. But, you know, volunteering is inherently a local activity. You volunteer to do something for your community. Yes. You know, you, it, may, it may be that, you know, you want to help your community with its cancer support or whatever else, but it, yeah. it's generally tied to a local activity. Yeah. And I think that's the case on, on the volunteering that I do where I am. It's about, I mean, I was, I was talking to Chris earlier and saying that one of the guys that stood in the, the ward where I live in the local elections was blown away that he only missed out on election by 34 votes. Uh, and his experience was that actually he was the first candidate ever, let alone elected councillor, who came and spoke to people and said, "What are you interested in? What what what's what's what are the issues for you?" Yeah. And I think you know we, on the political side, we miss a big trick in this country. We've kind of pushed local government so far down that turnout's terrible. People don't yep. see it as important. People don't see it as relevant. Certain seats are so established as well yeah. that, that it's almost... Exactly. Yeah, and we've know, become... Taken for granted. We've become almost kind of presidential in the way that we think about elections because mm -hmm. next time around it'll all be about do you want Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer? Even though mm -hmm. most people don't live in Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer's constituencies and yep. both their local MP. Yep. And I think there's a danger that we do the same when it comes to volunteering, that it's about this big thing... It's not about the difference that you make in your local community. Mm. And that local community connection is really vital. That kind of brings me on nicely to my next question, <laughs> which is 
it looks likely that Labour, unless they throw away this ridiculous uh, lead they've got in the polls... I which mean, is possible. Which is definitely <laughs> possible, because it, it certainly have not capitalised either as well as it maybe should have, but um, Keir Starmer wins the next election. He wins it, and he has a, a majority in Parliament, so he's not sharing power with, with the Libs, with the Lib Dems. What difference do we see in volunteering? What difference do we see in Ooh. volunteer management? What do you want to see Keir Starmer's government do in that first term in office yeah. that can make a difference because we talked before the podcast about some of the problems we've seen over the last few years what does Labour uh, offer in the next in the next uh, okay. government that we've, we've not seen what's the changes we'd like to see honestly don't know because we're not at a point of having a manifesto no nope. um, and I think people far more knowledgeable and experienced and senior in the party than me need to make some of those decisions uh, I I would say I would say two things on that. First of all, I think it's quite a sad state of affairs that whatever any of the political parties will say in the election manifesto, uh, volunteering in the voluntary sector will feature incredibly low down if it features at all. Uh, NCVO and Akivo are doing some good work at the moment to try and get a manifesto put together. I did a 200 Word Tuesday post recently asking people to post ideas for things to go in the manifesto, which got almost no response oh really um i well i think it's that thing of maybe people don't want to be kind of like i'm so and so from such and such an organization and yeah. i'd like somebody to do this okay so and i say it's quite sad because i'm old enough and long enough in the tooth in the sector to remember the days when we had a compact and we had you know cabinet level representation from yep. the sector uh, for the sector and all of those kinds of things so i think that's quite sad I think nobody should be under any illusion that whoever wins the next election, there isn't going to be a Theresa May style magic money tree that's found with loads of cash. Okay. So I can't see anybody in central government, whether it's a majority, a minority, a coalition, I don't think people are going to shower the voluntary sector with money. I just don't no, think that's no. going to happen. Because, you know, Liam Byrne famously wrote that letter when Labour left office in 2010 that said, dear successor, there's no money left. Mm -hmm. Well, there is absolutely no money yeah. left anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think what would be great would be, and again, to pick up some of the themes to do with the, the vision, for example, is there's a theme in the vision for volunteering around uh, much more public awareness about volunteering, much more, the kind of the kind of buzz around volunteering that we felt after the 2012 Olympic and Paralympics, the kind of buzz that we felt, which was about the only good thing coming out of the first lockdown, about yeah. that mm. community spirit. And yeah. I think there's a narrative that they can play out, our elected yeah. officials can play out, at local government and national government, and indeed in the devolved administrations around yeah. the UK around that. There are changes that we could look at around like the stuff we were talking about and moving to a, a wellbeing economy. Yeah. And how do we look at well-being as a kind of key measure of our success rather than just about the economic yeah. stuff? There is a, a recognition whoever gets elected is going to have to engage in the climate agenda. And that climate agenda is largely being driven by volunteers. Yep. You know, it is not paid staff that invaded Centre Court or wherever it was at Wimbledon today as we're recording this for Just Stop Oil. Yeah. It is not paid staff walking down London streets holding traffic. It's not paid staff gluing themselves to the road. Nobody gets paid to start a revolution. Mm. 
It's volunteers like making that. I'd yeah. love to say it was original. It was a Susan Ellis classic. And she always used to say, you know, if we waited for paid staff to make change, yeah. women in this country would still be waiting for the right to vote. Of course. You know, now we're in Manchester, so that's a good place to talk about suffragette movement. Yeah. And you can argue till the cows come home where they volunteers. The reality is they weren't being paid. They were doing something they were passionate about. It was for the benefit of the wider community. Yeah. In my book, driven. that's volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think any future government, if we can recognise that and we can talk that up, that helps with that awareness piece. Mm. I'd love to say that any future government's going to make a you know, change-up style naughty's investment in local volunteering infrastructure. Ain't going to happen. No. But I think that's why the awareness is also partnered with the appreciation. Yeah. It's yeah. not only the appreciation of people um, giving their time as volunteering, it's the appreciation of the impact of that time. Absolutely. And I think that moves us quite nicely onto data yes. and kind of trends and insight. Um, we know that Sport England released their Active yep. Lives survey, which talks about the participation in sport, but also the impact of volunteers, as well as NCVO recently released Time Well Spent um, and kind of the, the volunteer experience. As someone who's been across this sort of type of data for your 29 years, yeah. um, <laughs> year in, year Too out. Too much data <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> You know, it seems that the needle's kind of a bit stubborn to shift and yeah, we've, we've yeah. got the vision for volunteering. Yeah. Like, how how do we get it to kind of move in the right direction? And what do the, the latest results kind of tell us around the state of the sector at the moment? Okay, yeah, and data is, can be, I can be upset. There is a famous story in my family, it was around writing funding bids and me waking up in the middle of the night, one night. Well, I didn't even wake up, I just sat back or bolt upright in bed and went, no more spreadsheets. So... Um, <laughs> It gets used quite a lot uh, in my family about my inner data geek. Um, I I think we're sat in a position that's almost unique in my 29 years in the field in terms of the richness of the data that we've got. So in England, at least, because volunteering is a devolved responsibility yeah. for anybody listening who doesn't realise that across the UK. Uh, in England, at least, we have a community life survey that gives us 22, 21, 22 years worth of data. Um, that data since 2013 has pretty consistently showed a slowing in the rate of volunteer participation um, in line with what we've seen in the States and yep. Australia and others as well. Um, more recently, we've got uh, data from that survey from the year before COVID hit. We've then got the 2021 data, which was uh, from April 2020 to March 21. So when our principal three main national lockdowns in England happened. Yep. And then we've got the data from 21-22, which was, I think, October 21, September 22, something like that, which all the, re all the restrictions were lifted in February 22. So half of that, at least, is kind of post-COVID restrictions. Yep. So we've got data about levels of volunteering. Then we've got time well spent from 2019, which tells us about what people's volunteer experience, good and bad, was. Mm. Yep. And then, as you said, Imo, we've just, in the last couple of weeks, had 2023, mm. which tells us about what people's experience is post-COVID. Mm. So that gives us, and you've got then things like the, the Sport England stuff and yep. the New yep. British Heart Foundation report, yep. all of which provide kind of sectoral, subsectoral insights. Context. Mm -hmm. yeah. Context yep. of this. So we've got loads of information and what does that information tell us volunteering has not was declining before the pandemic it 
really declined during the pandemic for obvious reasons. It doesn't seem to have picked back up again. Now, that same period, as I say, covered part of lockdowns. It also covered the beginning of cost of living crisis. So we probably need another year or two's worth of data to conclusively say that we're either continuing another downward trend or it's not going to get reversed. The big worry for me from the most recent set of community life survey data, which came out was end of January time, was that informal volunteering, which everybody talked about at the end of the first lockdown. There was all this together coalition work and it talked about 8.3 million people who would be interested in volunteering again in the future informally. Mm -hmm. Informal volunteering rates have tanked post-COVID. And part of the reason why I don't like that July 2020 data being quoted is it's quite a unique snapshot. You know, July 2020, we were mostly furloughed. We were Mm. mostly sat at home in our pants watching Netflix because there was nothing else. for yourself. Nothing else that we could do. (laughs) It's like it was was like you sat in my room watching me. That's that's a very different. I've just given everybody a mental image of Chris that they didn't want. Um, Podcasting is not a visual medium. It is now. Good to um, on video this one, right? That's a very different world from where we are now. In fact, yeah. pro bono economics found there were six million fewer volunteers in the second lockdown than the first one. It, that in itself is interesting yeah. as a mm. stat. So, so we've got this kind of decline. We also know that whilst 92% of volunteers are happy with their experience, according mm. to time well spent, that's 4% down yeah. from pre-pandemic. Yeah. We know that people are telling the research... And this is 7,000 people, so more, yeah. far more than adults you need for a national... Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it does look at adults, yeah, yeah, yeah. 16 plus, yeah. indeed, because nobody under the age of 16 volunteers, so we should never bother surveying <laughs> them. New Zealand count it from 10 and up, which is I a do, much better way of doing it. Mm. But it, it tells us that people think volunteering is becoming too much like paid work. Increasing numbers are saying it's too much like paid work. There's this really interesting thing in there that people who don't volunteer say that what puts them off is concern about a lack of flexibility. Mm. But then 82% of people who do volunteer say that their volunteering is flexible. So there's a perception, there's an image issue around that as well. That people are saying they're less likely to volunteer, that people, particularly young people, are concerned about being out of pocket. Mm. You know, we're all having to cut back financially. Organisations are no exception. But if we don't offer the reimbursement of volunteer expenses, we erect a massive barrier to people mm. volunteering. And we go completely contrary to all the public statements we make about how important equality, diversity and inclusion is, of course. which yeah. is just like the worst form of hypocrisy yeah. from a social justice sector. Yeah. So we're in a we're in a position where uh, um, it I've wrote a blog post about this recently. It feels like everything's a bit doom and gloom at the moment. The headwinds are not. They're not easing off. No, the indications are not positive. And we yeah. do we do things, you know, we've had three Commonwealth Games this century already. We've had an Olympic and Paralympic Games. They haven't really moved the needle on volunteering. My better angels would say it was a wonderful thing that apparently 7 million people volunteered for the big help out. Mm. That's great. And yep. that's wonderful if that proves to be accurate. It's a much smaller sample size than we would normally look at. Anecdotally, I'm hearing from organisations, and we are only a couple of months on from that as we record this, 
that isn't really flowing through into any more volunteering. Yeah. So I think what it's pointing to is, and I would say that none of the changes that we've seen have been stuff that we weren't expecting. We knew that the older generation were going to scale their volunteering back eventually because we don't live forever. We just never expected it was going to happen overnight on the 23rd of March when COVID restrictions came in in 2020. So I, I think for me, there was this brilliant quote from um, Ruchir Sharma in the States. I can't remember who they worked for. It was one of the big banks. It said, crises uh, rarely change anything. They simply accelerate what was already changing. And I think that's happened. And what it feels like to me is there's a nettle to be grasped by way of change. We're not going to solve recruitment problems by doing more of what we've always done. There's yeah. some fundamental change that needs to happen. Cuts back to our talk earlier about volunteer engagement professionals and senior leaders mm -hmm. being brought in, changes in attitude. There's something that needs to change. We've got the tools. We've got a great vision for volunteering. Mm -hmm. We've got in Scotland a really great action plan for volunteering, yeah. which importantly picks up the role of funders, which the vision yeah. for volunteering England doesn't. We've got all the data that we need to point data that says the kind of stuff that people and I have been saying for 10, 15, 20 mm -hmm. years. Yeah. The question now is what we do about it. And yeah. what we do about it, do we do it as individual organizations to try and fix our own problems? Or we do, do we do it collaboratively as a sector recognizing that this is a problem for all of us that we need to solve and it's a solution that creates a renewable resource of volunteer time long into the future and it's funny you mentioned big help out because i know how much you two love talking about campaigns so uh <laughs> we'll come on to that in a minute but i i did just want to pick up on your informal volunteering point yeah. and so we, through the adversity of the pandemic, had yep. to think really innovatively to, to kind of like manage and navigate that. And I just wonder, coming out of COVID, how well do you think the structure, infrastructure and operating system is of organisations in encouraging informal volunteering? And actually, is that a result of the decline or is it the motivations yeah. of the people? I, I, think it, I think it's the infrastructure. I think it was really interesting seeing the good and the bad of the speed of change that happened when we went into lockdown. Mm. So I, I, think, I don't think we've really taken the opportunity as a, a volunteer management engagement community or indeed as a sector to properly recognise and celebrate the amount of innovation that happened at rapid pace and rapid yeah. scale yeah. out of necessity and you know i applaud everybody who was able to do that yeah um i don't think the infrastructures changed to adapt to that i think we we changed out of necessity and then anecdotally again what i heard from a lot of organizations was the moment everything started opening up again we went back to DBS checking anything with a heartbeat. We went back to volunteers are inherently a risky proposition, despite the fact that without volunteers, yep. the death toll would have been a lot higher. I mean, you look at what happened with NHS volunteer responders, just on that, I applied within 24 hours of that launching. Name, address, telephone number, email, scan of passport. You're approved within 24 hours to do yep. stuff that six weeks previously would have probably taken you two months to be vetted mm. to do. At least. Mm. At least. And then we've, gone back because it's kind of default to risky volunteers yeah so i don't think the infrastructure's there and i'll i'll be controversial 
Thank really? you. That's what I've been waiting for. Well, I'm very controversial. Sitting there waiting patiently. <laughs> uh, Let him talk long enough. <laughs> I think some organisations and some of, and I'll include myself in this, in the sector, uh, need to apologise to volunteers for what happened during that first lockdown. Mm. Because... Whilst it was done for, I'm not saying nobody should have, I'm not saying people should have changed the way they did it, but because of the unique circumstances, volunteers were stood down very quickly. Mm. Yep. Organisations then furloughed their volunteer managers, and that for some organisations meant that sometimes elderly, but not always, isolated individuals because, had the one yeah. thing that mattered to them that they got up in the morning for volunteering taken away from them mm. and then the person that they connected to that organization from taken away from them mm. as well and if I was in that position with everything that was going on in that first lockdown and the the fear that everybody had yeah I would feel betrayed I would feel abandoned I would feel that within 24 hours I'd gone from being told we can't do our work without you to you're out there on your own mm. and you've got to live with this on your own and we're not here yeah. for you anymore. And you're not going back to that organisation thereafter. And, and you're, no, you're not. Is, you're you know. not going back to that organisation, but also you're probably going to question whether you even want to go back to volunteering. Yeah. Mm. And again, I'm not saying that organisations were wrong to do that. You know, they were very unique circumstances. People had to look after their paid staff, they had to look after their budgets, they had to look after... But if we're honest, we need we need to apologise to some people for the way that we did. I had a brilliant article on my blog. It was brilliant because I didn't write it. <laughs> in the autumn of 2020, from a hospice volunteer manager who kept every single volunteer going in the clinical team yeah, right the, through the some, worst there of There is COVID. some good yeah. stories from that period. Right through the worst but of the, it. The, they are more the exceptions than the rules. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that... That was about risk. That was about Very understanding so. that yeah. these were, you know, it wasn't they weren't more risky because they were volunteers. These were intelligent people who had yeah. done the right job of recruiting them. We trained mm. them. That wasn't going to work in every organisation. But I think until introspectively we look at both the really good things that we did in there mm -hmm. and the really bad things, if yeah. you want to phrase it that way, that we did in that period. If we don't look back, we won't learn from it, and yeah. we won't try and solve those problems again in the future. So shifting, you mentioned the NHS responders. Yeah. I mean, I want to lighten the mood, but I don't know whether this is going to lighten the mood. Probably or just not. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. Um, <laughs> but uh, So NHS responders, and then more recently, we talked yep. a little bit about the big help out, 7 million people. Currently, from my awareness, there is no end date at the moment on the big help out. It's no, there it's as an app over the that, summer, yeah, yeah, that yeah. you can kind of engage with it. Um, and there was a lot of excitement and interest. But we don't always see, as you talked about, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like from Olympic, Paralympic legacies in the decade and that side of things, the translation into the more tangible benefits no, to no. the sector. So what are the positive things that will translate it and kind of sustain it and help it grow in the good way we okay. want it to? Okay. So one is about learning and reflection and understanding. Uh, NHS volunteer responders, NHS volunteer and care responders as they are now do fantastic work. Yep. Uh, again, really, really unique circumstances. You know, I, I don't think we've done enough of celebrating three quarters of a million people came forward to help with that initiative in less than a week. That's, again, 
exceptional circumstances, but yeah. that's a brilliant thing. And the fact that RVS were able to get that infrastructure up and running and going as quickly as they did, and indeed lots of local organisations did it in their own ways, mutual yeah. aid groups, etc. as well. Fantastic thing. Um, I, I don't think we've learned all the lessons that we could do from that. So about half of those volunteers were never given anything to do for very good reasons. Health and social care, local public services were desperately playing catch up. It yeah. wasn't their priority to populate Good Sam with opportunities. It was their priority to save lives mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. But we mobilised hundreds of thousands of people and never gave them anything to do. And there was a real learning opportunity from that for all of us to go, what do those people think about volunteering? How can we do that? Mm. Yeah. That window's gone, gone mm. now. So I bang that drum enough. We've, we've not learned from that. Where I think we can learn from it is through, uh, again, that connection to local. So where the mutual aid groups worked really, really well was when they connected in with local infrastructure. Yeah. Where, and there was a lot of kind of, which should be local, it shouldn't be national and top down and driven by that. Where it's worked really well is where the combination between that local and that national infrastructure has worked. What we have witnessed over 13 years in England compared to the other four, other three home nations is the dismantling of our local infrastructure for volunteering. So. Yep. CVS, volunteer centres yep. as a consequence of austerity. Yep. If you're in local government and you're faced with, do I empty the bins? Do I provide a social care service? Do I provide a volunteer centre? You empty the bins and you provide the social yep. care service. Um, we desperately need to get some form of local infrastructure back mm. to create that lasting future. And local infrastructure, I, I was responsible for local infrastructure for six years at volunteering, and it's not sexy. Funders don't want to fund it. <laughs> you can see people's eyes glaze over when you talk about infrastructure in the voluntary sector. It's not popular or anything like that. But without it, what it is is it's relationships. Yeah. It's community. It's mm. connection. It's not an office with a volunteer centre logo on it. It's somebody in the community who, yeah. when you come forward and you say, I need to do this, they go, oh, yeah, that person, that person, and that person. It's, the, it's the step from informal to formal yeah. for me. That's the, and the, I, the people that help that step, help organisations take that step. And I think that that is the key... Point. I think it's really interesting. I'd, I'd be really interested to know from talking to uh, people involved in Big Help Out how they found it engaging with the local infrastructure in England when it's so disjointed and so threadbare. Mm. I'd be really interested in finding out from them what they thought. You know, 20 years ago, Do It was a national volunteer database. If there was a volunteer opportunity through a local volunteer centre, it was on Do It. Yep. It's fragmented across dozens of systems now. So there is no kind of one. I'm not saying there should be one platform, mm. but there isn't one platform. A, a kind of a fundamental you infrastructure. You made the market more complicated for yeah. the, the end user, which to we think is a terrible it. thing. You yeah. know. Well, but it's funny because my brain's looped us back now to where we started in the conversation <laughs> in regards to the volunteer management or volunteer engagement professionals as a pathway and yep. actually is the problem the digital platform that's not connecting everything or mm. is the is the challenge that actually we need to have a better infrastructure of nurturing yes. people about yes. volunteer engagement yeah. both of them things so both. they can recruit retain support transition what the digital should do is make that other stuff easier yes yeah yeah it's not about 
technology is this I love my tech it's not quite good at it it is not about technology being the solution it is part of it's technology enabling facilitation enabling I mean there's all this talk at the moment about AI and AI is going to destroy the world you just need to spend five minutes on chat GPT to realize how far away we are from AI destroying the world you know it can be okay for another two years okay no but you said there is the tech and it's the relationships and but like those are the people element yeah and then the kind of yeah exactly and I think it's how do we how do we kind of well do that. I mean, that we 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 again we did have me and Rob went for uh, lunch before the podcast and we talked about some of these things in advance. For for me, there's a a a gap in the in the leadership in the sector at the moment, which we which may help address some of these things. I, again, I'm not suggesting it's a top down fix, but there is a a gap somewhere in the leadership in the strategic direction and the pulling together of these organizations to form a more powerful single voice that speaks effectively on behalf of some of these bigger challenges because these challenges are bigger than any one organization yeah yeah mm. and i guess speaking to that what's your thoughts around that space uh, i would agree i think there's a there's a there is that kind of gap in leadership and i think the danger is in the kind of economic context that we're in yeah there is a an understandable need to kind of look after your own and look after of your organisation yeah. and do all of that. I, I don't know where that leadership would come from, though. I know it shouldn't be, you know, an independent consultant. It, it needs to be, you know, in, in Scotland, you've got Volunteer Scotland. In Northern Ireland, you've got Volunteer Now. You've got a distinct organisation yeah. speaking up for volunteering. You've got that in Australia. You've got it in New Zealand. Wales, England, we're kind of voluntary sector and volunteering all part of one, which is, you know, NCVO and WCVA do absolutely fantastic work. Yeah. But where's that platform? I mean, in the past, we had the Nivea Group, we had the England Volunteering Development Council, we had these bodies where politicians, funders, kind of interested parties would engage, where we yeah. could convene people and have these conversations i think moving stuff online hasn't helped i mean there's loads of advantages to having online and but it fragments yeah i i know there are colleagues of mine on the heritage volunteering group who if they listen to this will go here he is banging on again about <laughs> everything being online archives are online as well yeah they? i know <laughs> but um and i do online podcasts and training but there is something that is materially different about being in a room with people of course i went to i went to uh, inside government volunteer management conference at the end of january this year and there were about i would reckon 150 200 volunteer managers yep. in the room and it was the usual thing that where the really where the real richness and value came yeah. was you're chatting to some random person you've never met before mm. in a queue for the toilet or for coffee or yep. for yeah. lunch and that's where those conversations happen. That's where those networks are built. Mm. That's where that exchange of ideas and you're doing this and I'm doing. Mm. Whereas what we do now is we do our conference on Zoom and it gets to the coffee break and everybody turns the cameras off, mutes themselves and goes into their kitchen. Yeah. That conference, by the way, sounds terrible. You queued up everywhere. <laughs> 200 people in a small space. But, but equally, if you decide, I mean, AVM have been very good with their conference of saying we're going to do a networking thing afterwards in the afternoon. I think they'll admit themselves it wasn't a successful Zoom. You get a fraction of the yeah, people. Yeah, and it's the yeah, usual, yeah. usual faces. You get and, a fraction of the you know, people. The usual going. people that you would see at these things 
other people that you would have mentioned to be on that event. It's Absolutely. Not, not the new people or the people that are a little bit unsure or and I'm less very, confident. I'm very mindful as somebody with a name and hopefully a positive reputation and the length of experience that I've got that there is a danger that voices like mine can crowd out the new and the innovative and the yeah. creative and it's how do we find a space for those to be heard and that diversity of ideas. Carl Wilding, who I mentioned earlier, used to be the chief executive at NCVO, did a brilliant thing at Heritage Volunteering Group Conference years ago where he'd gone through the delegate list beforehand. So it's a room full of people who manage volunteers yep. in Heritage. And he said, some, I may get the name wrong, but he went something along the lines of, do you realise there are more people in this room called Alison than there are from... A, a black Asian minority <laughs> background which speaks volumes if those of course. voices and faces aren't mm. represented in volunteer yeah. management yeah, yeah, yeah. they're not going to help vo those yeah. voices and faces be represented in volunteering so I think we've got to find a way to create that conversation have that dialogue that people can participate in and it's cost yep. effective yep. and it's time effective which is a great thing of online but has the richness of the in-person with it as well. It's a challenge. It is a real it challenge. It is a real challenge. And again, that's where the local infrastructure can do that. And Yeah. But you, it's many, many small parts that make up that big hole. And yeah. and again, that's where that leadership piece comes from me to, to create a situation where that can happen. And at the minute, it feels like it's a little bit... Um, I've used the word a couple of times today, fragmented. Mm. And that, that's it feels like there could be something more... It's also, do we see, that goes back to your point from a much earlier, Emma, about do we see this as a profession? Yes. Mm -hmm. if, this is, if this is just a job, which, let's be honest, it is for some people, mm -hmm. I, I, this, this is all I know. I have, I have no plan B to fall back on. I dropped out <laughs> of university, and there aren't many jobs in physics and acoustics anyway. Two years anyway. of acoustics, yeah, you know. Not very well, though. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if, so I, you know, this, I'm passionate about this. This is my vocation. This is what I know. This is, you know, I'm fortunate enough to do something that I love and make money from it as well. Mm. Um, not a lot of money, but I make money. Anybody out there who thinks of becoming a consultant, <laughs> believe me, it is not the route to untold riches that some people will tell you it is. Um, but if you're doing it to get on and get a job in the sector, if you're doing it because it's something that you love, but you're not really interested in that bigger picture thing, then you're not going to feel that need to be part of that and debate. And that comes, that comes again what you were saying before about volunteer managers versus people that manage volunteers. Yeah, exactly. That, exactly. That, you know. And how do we give the space? So a lot of people I've heard from in the last year have said, do you know what, I'd love to go back to face-to-face -face conferences, but I've got no travel budget and yep. I've got no L&D budget left anymore. Mm. How daft are we in our sector where we are never going to compete with the private sector on yep. money and salary to strip out L&D budgets because yeah. L&D is about the only thing that we can offer yeah. that is going to be really, really meaningful. We're not, yeah. going, we're not talking about private healthcare. We're not talking about company cars. We're not talking about gym membership. Mm -hmm. Any of those things that you get with a salary three times the amount. And what we do is we take all of that L&D stuff away because we're a bit worried that our reserves might take a hit. I know I'm being no. deliberately facetious. Well, no, but. no, I know. But, well, well I, I didn't mean I know. But um, <laughs> I, I was going to say, I guess it's how, where you talked about digital being the enabler, L&D is the enabler for people yes. to be more yes. inclusive, to understand what they're not consciously aware of, you know, to create that sense of belonging. And I just, I guess there's a, 
I definitely think that volunteering and learning and development come hand in hand because you know that a lot of individuals will volunteer to grow in an experience because they want to learn something new in a supportive way or impart really great knowledge that they have mentoring others in an area that they want you know that they're passionate about so yeah I mean that's that's another podcast right yes definitely is (laughs) We are going to be here till mid. Well, I was going to say, well, I think, well, I've lost where we are on our list of questions. Well, yeah, but you. So we are just over 12 months into the vision for volunteering. Uh, It was launched with some some fanfare, and, uh, you know, we, we, I think the last time we saw each other in person was at at that particular event. Yeah. You know, what are your thoughts 12 months in? What are my thoughts 12 months in? Uh, I think the vision for volunteering is brilliant. It's aspirational. It's energising. I think when it launched, I was really struck by how many volunteer engagement professionals went, this is fantastic. I can restructure my volunteer strategy or write my new volunteer strategy around these. I think uh, there's so much in there that everybody would agree with and engage with. I think it lost a lot of momentum because it launched on May the 6th, 2020. Yep. Uh, we're now on July the 5th, 2020. No, May the, May the 6th, 2022, it launched. Yes, I was going to say, yeah. We're now on uh, 5th of July as we record this, 2023. So it's not a 10-year vision anymore. It's a less than nine-year vision. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we need to be really mindful of that. that the clock is ticking yeah. mm. um we have a wonderful team of people the three people led by laura lather at ncbo are doing fantastic work raising awareness of that vision really pushing that vision forward and we've been to some of the events that they've done and it's both amazing and also slightly worrying to see the number of people who n- didn't know anything about the vision mm. but that for me is good is a good thing because we're connecting with a broader audience yep. which is exactly what we want to do I think go back to the point earlier about leadership. I think the fact that we've got a collaboration of Sport England, NAVCA, Association of Volunteer Managers, NCVO and others, yep. pulling all of that together is brilliant because yep. that, again, collaborative relationship, mm-hmm. more than one organisation can do. I'm, again, old enough and long enough in the tooth to remember when we had the Commission on the Future of Volunteering in 2008, okay. um, which did a very, very similar exercise. Okay and very similarly was unfunded in terms of its implementation yep. and it was hampered by a change of government two years later there's a worrying parallel there that the vision yep. could have a change of government yep. two years later but I think it's separate enough from politics and it, this time around unf- with it being generally unfunded as yeah. well it's probably less uh, I I don't know I, I would hope that by 2032 most of what that vision set out to do is achieved. I'm quite optimistic about that. I'm quite positive, and I would love to do whatever I can and work with whoever I can to try and help make that happen. I don't think we'll get there. I think time's ticking too quickly. When you know the the, the dark days that we're in at the moment, economically, etc., are not yep. going away anytime soon. I think the pressures on organisations are going to be significant, um, and I think we'll probably need to get to a point four to five years out where we really hone in on maybe the stuff around EDI, maybe some of the stuff around power and changing power structures within organisations mm-hmm. to make that work. And that's not a bad thing. If we manage two or three of those five, I think some of the stuff is beyond our control, yeah. like 
a societal change where everybody suddenly recognises the value of volunteers and the, the that aspirational our stuff is runs on nature, yeah. aspirational. Yeah. That, that whenever we talk about volunteers in the NHS, people don't immediately talk job substitution. Yeah, you know, we're recording this on the seventy fifth anniversary of the NHS. Mm. Volunteers have been involved since day one of the NHS. Mm. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Mm. It's not a new thing. Yeah. Um, so there's all that kind of stuff that I think might be a bit outside of our control we've tried it before we've not kind of really got there with it yeah but I, i'm confident that some of it will be some of it will happen some of it has to happen all the informal stuff yeah, is yeah. about changing power structures yeah, yeah. if we we're in a much more diverse society mm. if we don't address some of these edi issues mm. you know the very nature of the collaboration on it it should as, as we talked a bit earlier about the leadership it, it yeah. gives an opportunity for these relatively disparate organisations to pull yeah. together on a, a single voice for the sector. To absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, there's some optimism in here. There is, oh, there you is you two got to be optimism. the light, right? Because we've got a bit of darkness. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> and I go back to even with all the darkness that's going on at the moment, I go back to that point earlier about this is where creativity, this is where yeah. innovation happens. Necessity yeah. drives it. You yeah. go back to one of the organisations I worked for in the past, Bernardo's, Thomas Bernardo was a, an Irish missionary on his way out to India or the Far East or somewhere like that. And he saw for himself the darkness of what young people were going through in the East End of London at yep. the time and started that organisation. It was through that awful experience that those yep. young people were having yep. that an organisation exists now, like, like every organisation isn't perfect, but has transformed lives of young people yep. for the better for decades. And, you know, I think... All of our all of our organisations have been born out of a similar kind of experience to mm. that. If you're a charity, yeah, I, I always have a I always have a funny, such a funny paradox situation that we've got to get so things have got to get so bad again before we can before we have to sort of, you know, it, it speaks so poorly the political classes that we kind of have to do it ourselves and set these organisations yeah. up and and make the difference for your own communities. But that's mm. kind of fundamentally, that's kind of what volunteering has been based on since day dot it's yeah, absolutely know. whereas yeah. what inspires the change in you what yeah. what inspires you to take action yeah. to make yeah. something different and, and we do yeah. live in a you know we're very fortunate with you know the nhs and the public services that we've had we do live in a, a society now where we expect somebody else to do it for us yep and and that's not a bad thing but I think also more and more of us are realizing that sometimes you actually have to do it yourself if you want that local park built for the kids in your yeah. neighbourhood well, I think you've got to agitate and campaign for it I think yeah. you do see with the certainly you know I'm of an age now where I've seen more of the younger generation and I'm no longer considered to be in that generation so much but you you do get that sense of um, you know the consumerism element it, you, we have been consumers for such a long time but you see with a lot of younger people they are more engaged and cause aware mm. Mm. you know and maybe not the whole sec, not all of the not, but there's certainly a a highly charged group within that that yeah. sort of you know and you you see that's one of the positive things out of some of the figures I've seen is there has been an increase in young pe young people volunteering yeah, absolutely you absolutely know? so and it, and none of this is is new as well I mean I always joke Tony Blair I think in his second term in office had an aspiration of a million more people volunteering I think that was in Iraq though so. and he yeah. <laughs> well it, the Iraq connection is he could have hit that target on if one not. day yeah, yeah. Yeah. when everybody marched through London yeah, yeah, about yeah. going Russ. into Iraq in yeah. 2003 yeah, yeah. but those weren't the kind of volunteers well, that he wanted no, no. so um, so yeah so you know I think I, I think there's a people can there's that agency how do we give people that sense of agency that. Yeah. to really make change 
happen rather than sitting back and waiting for somebody else to do it for them. Well, that's a perfect segue into the little conference that you and yeah. Chris are working on with Team Kinetic um, for this year. And the topic is changing the world of work and its impact on volunteering. Now, we don't want to ruin it because you want to have the element of surprise no for those that... Yeah, well, because I haven't also like haven't written the presentation <laughs> yet, am I? So. Yeah, I know, yeah, that's all right. share a brief because we've been about three hours I think on um, this podcast Um, introduce some of the themes that you might be discussing and give us a little bit of a flavour of what people could um, look forward to around the future challenges and and how we're going to change the world. So we talked a lot about volunteering and the pandemic over the course of the conversation so far today. Obviously the world of work's changed Mm. in the pandemic flexible working, home-based working four-day week um, universal basic income trials or AI and what that could do for the way that we all work. So what I'm quite keen to do is pull something together because it's an area that I've just been interested in, I've been reading loads and loads about over the last few months, is try and bring something into land for volunteer engagement professionals. What does this mean for us? What's yeah. poten- Let's just take four-day week. What's the potential of suddenly lots of people having a three-day weekend yeah. for volunteering? What does that mean for us? What are their priorities on that extra day off and how do we compete with those other things they could where do with their spare time? Where does volunteering sit leisure? Or compliment. Yeah, where, where does volunteering Absolutely. sit in that leisure piece? It's yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Look at universal basic income. So if we're all paid £1,600, for most people that's not enough to live on. You still have to go out and do something. Yeah. But it potentially allows people, some of the studies that have been done in, in Scandinavia, to have the financial security to start their own businesses, which they wouldn't have done in the past. Well, if you run your own business, there's a flexibility that comes with that because you're your own boss Mm -hmm. that then makes it potentially easier to volunteer. AI, if that's going to free up loads of our time because we're not going to have to write 100-page boring PowerPoint presentations anymore, (laughs) ChatGPT will do it for us. What does that mean for the time that we have available? Equally, If we're a volunteer manager who puts our professional status and credibility into doing the admin side of our job, and within two years, Microsoft Copilot can do that for us. We're already working on that. What does that mean for us as a profession? Mm. Go back to competencies. It means that interpersonal, that human connection bit becomes far more important. So I don't have, I'm not going to have the answers because I've got to write it in August. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to have the answers by the 27th of September. But what I want to do is try and get people to, to think about this kind of stuff and start engaging with this kind of stuff because it's coming down the line. You know, AI is, is already transforming the way that people do yep. work. Yep. This, we're not going to be immune to this in the charity sector. Um, how do we think about it now so that we're in a position to adapt? If people would like to save the date for the conference, it's going to be the 27th of September. You'll be able to visit uh, the Team Kinetic website to book your tickets. And if you're already a Team Kinetic user, you'll be able to do it within your own app. Um, we can't wait to see you all at the uh, event. That's very good. So we're kind of bringing it to a close now. We've talked competencies, professional pathways. We've talked Rob's 
celebrated Rob's anniversary of work <laughs> and journey, uh, a little bit of politics, leadership, data, campaigns, vision for volunteering. So you've had quite a I lot. I think it's a, the broadest yeah, of her time. I had a feeling this one may be that podcast. And definitely if anyone like decides they really liked a bit and they want to give you some feedback and you could come back, yeah. you could hone in uh, on, a, on a different area. So there is one thing that we like to finish on. It's okay. a, um, a little thing that Chris and I do and it's called Two From You. Okay. And that is where we'd love you to share one word from your professional work within volunteering and then one word from your personal world as a volunteer that you feel sum up life in volunteering. Okay. Uh, so the professional word would have to be flexibility. Nice. Bit which I fix. think is probably the most used word in the new time well spent report. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gone through and analysed it. <laughs> Amy and Ray who wrote it might be able to tell me differently. <laughs> You get uh, a sense of that. Yeah. Put it through ChatGPT. <laughs> no, I haven't times? put it through ChatGPT yet. <laughs> um, and from the personal one, I think relate back to what I was saying about the reason why I do it. It's around um, passion. Nice. So flexibility and passion. I think if we're designing more volunteering that is flexible and really hones in on people's passions, we're not doing a bad job. Love it. Love it. Well, a massive thank you from both of us. I do listen to your advance in the profession. I was a little bit excited when Chris said we were going to do the process, so that's my fangirl moment. Um, but yeah, thanks for agreeing to be a part of Team Talk with us. If Pleasure. you're listening to the conversations and it's triggered any curiosity, or as we said earlier, you'd love to explore more, definitely let me and Chris know, because we love we love a good conversation. We do. We, We're going to be putting links into Rob's 200-word Tuesdays. Yeah, if you use my Linktree link, it will go through to absolutely everything. everything. Okay, podcast I was going to, was going to try and list all the things that Rob does, oh, content-wise, no, and realise <laughs> that this isn't a Joe Rogan podcast, and we need to get home at some point for our tea tonight. So, uh, but uh, no, massive thank you, Rob, for your Pleasure. time today. It's been uh, it's been lovely to get into all this stuff with you. Uh, it's always it's always interesting because you have such well-formed opinions. It's a uh, it's a nice chat to have. I am, as I describe myself to sometimes to clients, I am a professional opinion spouter for hire. <laughs> I like that. Amazing. Uh, as always, if you'd like to email us, it's pod at teamkinetic.co.uk. Um, share your thoughts, share your ideas, give us your feedback, any requests for future episodes. Uh, we're, we're currently planning season three, so hopefully you'll be hearing a little bit more from us over the next few weeks. Uh, do subscribe, and until next time, from all of us, take care, take care of yourselves, take care of somebody else, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.